morning. Just a uh, housekeeping note. Nothing is going to happen to that screen behind me for like a long time. Okay. So those of you who take notes, you can just write story. Because that's what's going to happen. And then some things will come up at the end. So don't be setting an anticipation. Um, you know, every, every Sunday evening, 4.45 p.m., a Mexican young woman, a single uh, Anglo environmental engineer, and an African-American grandfather chef, and an African-American family with three adorable daughters, and a biracial couple with an adopted triracial child, a Ugandan computer engineer married to an Anglo school teacher, an African-American single mom with five precious children, an African-American couple with no kids, a Panamanian couple, I'm sorry, a Panamanian and his very pregnant Anglo wife, and an Anglo single young nurse practitioner, a seminary employee and his pre-med wife, a missionary medical student, a theologian, a fiancé, a stay-at-home mom, a department manager, and an HR specialist just now sat down in her seat. They all meet together in a community group and they share a meal and they share their lives and they share from the Word of God. And I'm, I'm wondering if the neighbors are starting to wonder, why are all these diverse people, socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, all these different stage of life, married, unmarried, why are they all hanging out together? And, and we could ask that question here on a typical Sunday morning, why are there multiple cultures represented at TCC? Why are Mexicans, Africans, and African Americans, engineers, ex-convicts, stay-at-home moms, school principals, vegetarians, Tar Heels and Wolfpack, Republican and Democrat, Section 8 residents and business managers, why are they all convening on this one location and doing life together? Why are moderately wealthy sitting next to under-resourced? Why are night shift workers, painters, plumbers, and maids chatting with doctors, software engineers, financial planners, and lawyers? Why is this happening? I mean, in the culture that we are in, in, in these divided United States of America, this is not typical. Why is it that when you walk in the doors back there and you come in, you will not be shunned because of your suit and tie, and you will also not be shunned because of your worn-out jeans? Now, you have to ask the question, why will you not be shunned for your you know, big man fat paycheck or double income lifestyle? And you'll also not be shunned because you have no paycheck and perhaps survive via food stamps. And yet you're, you're welcomed here, not just welcomed here, but you're embraced and you're loved. This is a question that Theophilus was asking the early church when he was considering whether or not he wanted to join up. He was asking this question, why are multiple cultures represented in the Christian church? It's so unheard of. Why are multiple cultures represented in the Christian church? Why does Christianity actively draw together a cross-cultural family? 
And so we'll transition to the story, and it is a story, it is a narrative. And when Theophilus received this from uh, Luke, it was a letter, but it was then passed around from church to church, and they would hear it. And, and by the time they came to the end of the story, they would walk away thinking, I get it, I understand the intent. And so I'm going to share this to you in story form this morning. But every good story comes with a prequel. Our story comes from Acts chapter 21 and 22. You can flip there if you like, or you can just kind of hold your finger there and, and follow along and, and check every once in a while to make sure I'm not lying. Okay? But Acts 21 and 22, and the prequel is this. It was dangerous times. Jewish nationalism was on the rise. Political unrest was on the rise. The Jews were being battered left and right by the Roman dictators and the tyranny of Felix the governor. And every so often, every so many years, another Messiah would rise up to save the people from the Romans and then get battered back down. The year was A.D. 54. And an Egyptian Jew stepped on the scene, walked into Jerusalem, proclaiming that he was a prophet and that at his word the walls of Jerusalem would come down and the Jews would overthrow the Romans at last. He gathered a band of 4,000 followers and they went out into the wilderness to the Mount of Olives to plan their attack. Felix caught wind of this. The 4,000 followers, band of followers, they come to ransack the city, to take the city back for God. Felix meets them with horsemen and with footmen, and they slaughter 400 and imprison 200. The rest are dispersed to their homes or flee to the wilderness. The Egyptian Jew who led this brigade fled to the wilderness and was never heard of again. But his followers rose up, and from time to time, they would have skirmishes here and there, and they became known as the Sakai, the assassins. They were the assassins because they were so intent on Jewish purity that they would actually take down their Jewish brothers who would be found collaborating with the Gentiles. They would go and they would actually burn the homes and the villages or or plunder the villages of those Jews who had been found collaborating with the enemy. The Gentile scum. They would even be found in the temple. You didn't know who they were because they would hide their curved daggers under their cloaks until one of the Jewish aristocrats who were under uh, suspect of being a collaborator with the Gentiles, they would get near and they would kill them on the spot in the midst of everyone and then disappear into the crowd. There was these growing tensions, Jew versus Gentile. And that's where our story starts. In Acts chapter 21. The story goes like this. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. You heard that last week. He'd been collecting um, the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. There were poor in Jerusalem that were in need. And he has been going preaching in Gentile regions, collecting money to bring back to the Jerusalem church. And he set his heart on going to Jerusalem. So he and his multi-ethnic band of followers, they get into a boat, they, they perhaps walk, and they, they travel by land and sea from city to city. They, they go to Kaz, the island of Kaz, they go to the island of Rhodes, and they're making their way closer and closer to Jerusalem, and they land in the town of Tyre. And they, they stay there for a week with a group of believers. And while they are there, the Spirit prompts these believers to tell Paul that you will come to oppressive forces in Jerusalem. And so after hearing this from the Spirit, they plead with him, Paul, don't go. Don't make this trip. Don't go. Paul, we we care about you. But Paul continues on his way. 
he and company, they get on a boat and they, they leave. They go across the, the sea. They go from Patara all the way to Caesarea. They take an express boat and it goes faster than normal because he's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. That, that's going to be a pivotal moment to give a Gentile offering to a Jewish church on the, the birthday of the church. And so he, he runs across there by boat. He comes to Caesarea and he, he lodges in a home of Philip the evangelist who has four uh, prophetic daughters probably under the age of 16 because they're noted as virgins. And it says that he stays with Philip and he and his band of, of believers. And while he is there, Agabus, a prophet from Jerusalem, arrives. And Agabus comes in. He takes Paul's belt ties up his hands and he says thus says the Holy Spirit the Jews will do this with the owner of this belt and hand him over into the hands of the Gentiles everyone everyone weeps Paul don't go Paul don't go surely surely you you know the Holy Spirit is telling you this Paul God would not want you to, to come to ruin. God would not want you to be oppressed. God would not want you to come to hardship. And Paul looks at them and he says, Why are you breaking my heart like this with your tears? I'm not ready just to be bound for Christ. I'm ready to give my very life for the cause of this Jesus. Realizing that he cannot be persuaded, they, they relent and say, The will of the Lord be done. And so, they're on the brink of Jerusalem. They leave out, and they move on into this closer outcropping of, of towns just outside of Jerusalem, and they stay with a man named Nason, which had been perhaps a believer for about 20 years, and he was a, a bit more of a Hellenist, a Greek Jew, and so he would have been more uh, willing to take um, uh, uncircumcised Gentiles into his home. And so they stay there. And the next day, Paul goes to visit James, who is the head of the Jerusalem church, the kind of Jerusalem megachurch. It's been very successful. It's brought in about 50,000 Jewish believers at this point. And James and the elders, they come and, and they want to hear from Paul. And uh, Luke does not describe this part, but likely at this point they, they give the Gentile offering to the Jerusalem church. And it says that James and the elders, they glorified God as they heard about what God was doing among the Gentile regions through Paul. Because remember, they had sent Paul. Antioch had sent Paul on this missionary journey among the Gentiles. And they praised God for what he was doing. But then there is a concern. You see, this is a primarily Jewish city. And this is a very successful 50,000 strong Jewish church. And James is at the head of it. And that's when we read in chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, their concerns. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What are we going to do? What is to be done, Paul? You, there is this rumor circulating saying that you're anti-Jew. You're anti-Semitic. You're anti-law. 
you, you're going around and we've put our blessing on you, Paul, and you're going out and, and you, we, we don't believe this rumor, Paul. We know you. We know that you're preaching only the gospel, that, that cultural practices are neutral and, and only those things which are against the gospel of Jesus Christ and those things that we said in our letter of four or five items that we said the Gentiles must abide by. That you're perfectly legit, Paul, but the, the problem is it's the perception that is impacting the gospel. What is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. We can't keep this under wraps. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, a Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them because you have been running in Gentile regions, Paul. Purify yourself and pay their expenses. Because as we know, when, when uh, foreign leaders have done this, Paul, they've been seen as very pious, that they are seen as one who really observes the law and respects the law. And so you'll do this to show everyone that you do not stand against the law. So pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, which is the completion of the vow. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what there has been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we send a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. We remember that in previous parts of Acts. And from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. See, Paul, this is not about what Gentiles can or cannot do. Paul, this is what we believe or they believe that you are saying Jews should not do. Observe the ceremonies and practices of our people. Paul agrees because Paul understands the cultural sensitivity of loving someone even when their concerns may be off base. Paul took them in. The next day he purified himself, suffied himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice that the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented each one of them. And so here's Paul. He's, he's moving in. He's walking into the temple courts. He's very familiar with this place. He actually grew up learning there under Gamaliel. And he, he makes it to the temple. It's the four concentric rectangles of space. And each one has a gateway to goes into the inner sanctum of the, further, uh, the, the previous one. And only if you qualified, only if you had the, the badge, only if you were able to have the authority or the, the status, could you make it into each further sanctum. So the outer sanctum, he's walking in, and he comes into the court of Gentiles, where only Gentiles, uh, they cannot go any further. There must be a Jew to go any further. And he walks by and he sees the steps that rise up to the fortress Atonia, where the Romans keep watch over the Jewish courtyard of the Gentiles, because they know that's where most of the skirmishes happen. And so there's the hundred foot tower there, the Tower of Atonia, and that is where... Um, Claudius Lysias the Tribune keeps watch on things there in the courtyard. He walks in and the courtyard is just a buzz. It's, it's, it's active. There are people that are singing. There are people who are coming to buy their offerings from all those tables that Jesus turned over in, in his gospel. And there are the people who are happy and there's people who have traveled from afar and there, there's lots of activity, lots of economic uh, commerce. There's lots of praise going on in the court of Gentiles. And then there's a further gate that he walks through and that's when he comes and he sees the four and a half foot tall stone balustrade called the Soreg, which essentially says in Latin and Greek, any 
Gentile who walks beyond this point takes responsibility for their own death. Paul perhaps grimaces knowing his friends who cannot come in. He knows in his mind that is the one capital punishment Rome has afforded Judaism. That they may kill anyone who walks beyond those, that point who's not a Jew. They don't even have to ask for permission. He walks in and now he's in the court of women. He keeps walking and, and that's where all of the women, they can't go beyond that point. And so then he comes to the court, the court of Israel. And that's where he may enter in and that's where he gets in line perhaps to pay for his vow, to pay for the vows of his Jewish brothers. Everything's going fine. He's made it into the inner sanctum. He can't go any further, obviously. That's when only the priests may go in. And beyond that, you come to the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest may enter once a year to pay the the atonement sacrifice for the sins of the whole country, the whole people. And as he's in line there in the court of Israel, he's thinking, it's going good. Everything's going according to plan. But then, there's a cry that rings out, Little Israel! Help! This is the man! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. He has even brought Greeks into the temple and desecrated, defiled this holy place. Paul is wondering where this claim has come from since he remembers his brother Trophimus the Ephesian that he had been walking with earlier that day in the city, but he did. Of course, he wouldn't have brought him in. And yet that is what is perceived and that is all that matters. Hands are grabbing at Paul. He is being forced physically out of his place. He is drugged out of the court of Israel, out of the court of women, all the way out into the court of Gentiles and sorry, thrown over there. He's being beat as people yell out. He brought scum into our most holy place. The house of our God desecrated by the pigs. The the, the doors that open from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women slam shut as the temple guards hope to not desecrate their holy place further with bloodshed. Of course, the whole city is up in arms. There is an uproar, a commotion as economic commerce grinds to a stop as the political and religious center of the entire city goes on lockdown. And word runs up the stairs to the the fortress of Antonia. Claudius Lysias, the tribune, word is brought to him. Sir, there's a disturbance. He says, not on my watch. And so a force, 160 strong, of horsemen and footmen come running down the stairs. Horses probably don't run down the stairs. But they come out the courtyard. But these stairs, they run right down into the court of Gentiles where the man is getting pummeled for the perception that he might have brought a Gentile into the court of Israel. He comes and and he, he spreads the crowd Two Roman soldiers, perhaps the centurions themselves, take Paul, pick him up forcibly, and put chains on him. The, uh, the Claudius looks to the crowd. What has this man done? Who is he? There's a commotion. Some are yelling one thing. Some are yelling another. No one really knows what is going on, and he's not very fluent in Aramaic anyway. 
he wonders what is what is wrong with this scene? What is causing this? When he can't get an answer, he turns to a centurion and says, Take him away for questioning. Or beat the truth out of him. And as they carry him away, as they drag him along with the chains around his hands, as Agabus so notably described, the crowd just gets even more abuzz. Away with him! They're violent. They're tearing at Paul such that the soldiers must carry him on top of their shoulders just to get him out. And they start their way up the steps of the fortress Antonia. As they're carrying him, though, Paul turns to the man and says, May I please speak to the people? He looks at him and says, What? You understand Greek? Aren't you that Jewish Egyptian revolutionary, the the leader of the assassins that we just ran off into the wilderness just three years ago? I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. It's like saying, I'm from San Francisco. I'm from Boston. I'm from Yale. So he says, all right. Smart boy who's not the assassin? You speak to the people. Maybe this is a case of misguided identity. You explain to them who you are. And he's basically giving Paul to get out of jail free card, right? Because it was a false claim. All Paul has to do is get up there and say, Look, Trophimus is nowhere to be seen. False charge. Let's shake hands and walk away. But this is what Paul says instead in chapter 22. Verses 1 through 16. Brothers, fathers. And as he says these words in the Aramaic dialect, the crowd dies down a little bit. He's speaking our family language. It's like when you're in the elevator and the, the Spanish or the Bulgarians, you know, they're like chatting away in their language. And whenever they smile, you think they've got to be talking about me. Because you don't understand a word they're saying. That's what's happening to the Romans right now. They don't understand a word Paul's saying. It's in Aramaic. But the Jews are settling it down a little bit. Speaking our language. Brothers, fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. But brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel himself, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, these Christ ones, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness." From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Chains not unlike these that are on my hands now. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, the brightest part of the day, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And and the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, a Jewish man, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, the Jews... He was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. And he came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, God of our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of our fathers appointed You to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth, for you will be a witness for Him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on His name. Believe in Jesus as the Savior of your sins. As a crowd hears this very Jewish messianic term, righteous one. They hear the familiar refrain of Isaiah 53 emblazoned on their minds. Close your eyes. Can you see it? Can you hear it? I can just see this Jewish prophet and he is proclaiming the word of the Lord in Isaiah 53:11 when he says, The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. We can see Stephen staring his murderers in the eye as they're ready to throw the stones, and he stares them in the eye, and they begin to throw them, and he says in Acts 7.52, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You see the Roman centurion with blood on his arms and a spear in his hands falling on one knee before a Gentile cross. Bearing a Jewish Messiah. And then Luke 23 He says, certainly, this man was a righteous one. But there's more. He didn't just say righteous one. He said he was appointed by the righteous one. At this point, Theophilus almost drops his scroll. Because he realizes that this word, this appointed, this selected, this chosen is a word that only Luke uses in the entire New Testament. And it's only used three times 
And every single time prokeritso appointed is used, it is in reference to the righteous one being appointed or someone being appointed for or by the righteous one. For example, close your eyes again. Can you see it? Can you hear it in Acts chapter 3? Verses 13 through 20, when Peter is preaching to the Jews in this very temple courtyard, and he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, to put to death the prince of life, the, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ, prokeritso, you appointed for you. Jesus was prokeritso appointed by the hand of God as Messiah to the Jews. Paul was prokeritso appointed by the hand of God to take the message of the Messiah to the Gentiles. This is not mere coincidence. Luke could have used other words. We read the word appointed in Hebrews just earlier, but it was a different word. It was translated appointed. He could have used different words. Luke is tying Jewish and Gentile salvation to God's choice. Paul's mission to the Gentiles is prokeritso appointed with the same authority, the same gospel significance, the same finality as the appointment of Jesus as the Savior of the Jews. This is because God's greater glory will be realized by a Savior who draws all men to himself and not simply those men who agree with one another, live on the same block, come from the same background, or wear the same skin color. And so we see here, Paul continues in his speech in verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and, and saw him saying to me, Make haste! Get out of Jerusalem. This is the righteous one speaking to him. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And at this point, we say, you're doing well, Paul. You're doing good, buddy. You, you have them hanging on your every word. You mentioned Jesus, and they didn't flinch. Now pull out while you're on top. Come on, Paul. Maybe mention Moses. Maybe mention Abraham. Shake hands. Walk away a free man. You've got it in the bag. But what Paul is about to say is so near and dear to his heart. It is so built up and bound up and embedded in the gospel that he cannot stop. And so we read in verse 21, He said to me, Go, for I will send you, the righteous one says. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The Gentiles. And like a buzzsaw, the steam and the anger and the sweat and the desire to hurt flies through the crowd and they start to yell, Away with him! 
He does not deserve to be on the face of the earth. Lysias has no idea what is going on. He, he can't understand the language, but all he knows is people are throwing their garments in the air, they're throwing dust in the air, and things are getting ready to get ugly. And so he takes Paul and says, let's go question him, let's beat the truth out of this guy. They're going to scourge him. They take him in, and, and to speed this up just a little bit, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize for you. They, they take him into the very place where Jesus himself was scourged. And Paul comes within an inch of getting scourged himself, but he is not because he, he reveals that he is a Roman citizen, something that is only afforded to people of clout. He was born a citizen. The very man that was going to try to imprison him had, had bribed his way into citizenship. And so he is not scourged. And we come to the end of the story, and basically, Paul the Jew, Paul the Roman, Paul the lover of Gentiles, made it to Jerusalem, and he will eventually make it to Rome, just as God appointed. And we're going to put some things up on the screen, because I think there are some implications here to this story as we close this out. There are some implications. Multiple cultures... This won't be on the screen, okay? Multiple cultures are represented in the Christian church because their inclusion was appointed by God. Implication number one from the story. Cross-cultural family requires the sacrifice of personal freedom. You know, if, you, if you walk into that community group I mentioned earlier, you will always see during the mealtime a gluten-free and a gluten-full option. And we've gone back and forth, and it's very inefficient, but we have, we have maintained that we will never default to either email correspondence or texting correspondence because there are some people in the group who simply don't have access to email, and there are some people in the group who prefer texting, and there are certain people in the group that just don't have what it, the, the means to, to get certain ways of communication. And so we will, we will have communication that touches all people. You see, I I believe that this is an illustration of cross-cultural family requires the sacrifice of personal freedom. An application perhaps for you this week would be pursue the beauty of us, the beauty of we and us, instead of us and them. Bear with one another is the way the Scripture says it. Limit yourself because of love. The poor in the room love the wealthy in the room. And the wealthy in the room love the poor in the room. Majority ethnicity do not despise the minorities. Minority ethnicity do not despise the majority. Educated serve the uneducated. Uneducated serve the educated. Pursue the beauty of we and us instead of us and them. We have honest conversations about the beauty which lie in our differences. Take the posture of a learner. And celebrate in the shoes of your neighbor. You know, this doesn't mean in, in order to uh, learn what it means to be black, you just listen to hip-hop and jazz and watch BET. Right? I mean, that, that might be a, a good start. But learning what it means to be black on her block, in her apartment complex, in her family, crying out to God for the souls of her grandkids, striving for her dreams. Dealing with her fears. Day in and day out. This is relationship. This is not stereotype. Pursue the beauty of we and us, not us and them. What might it be necessary 
What may not be necessary for us each personally may be necessary for the cross-cultural family in order to achieve family. Would you be willing, like Paul, to do something cultural like eat a vegetarian meal or eat meat? Or sing a black gospel beat? Or sing to a white boy guitar strum to calm the fears of fellow believers even if their concerns were off base? Just like Paul did. See, to be honest, we don't need to add Latinos and Asians and African Americans to a church full of white people. We need white Christians and Latino Christians and Asian Christians and African American Christians and African Christians outdoing one another to sacrifice for one another and bear with one another's weaknesses. And this is a cross-cultural family called the church. And so that first implication is that cross-cultural family lies at the heart of the appointed mission of God to bring... The cross-cultural family requires the sacrifice of personal freedom. And the second implication is that cross-cultural family lies at the heart of the appointed mission of God to bring about the greatest display of His glory. I, uh, I personally felt this when I attended a historically black college after coming from a uh, blue-collar, entirely white neighborhood where there wasn't a lot of diversity. There was some rich and some poor, but primarily we were all blue-collar, middle class, lower middle class. And I went to a historically black college where I was the minority. and even took part in sociology experiments where we would try to go around and pretend that two white people would try to go rent an apartment and we compare that to a mixed couple going and renting that same apartment and see what kind of price differences or racism we might meet. And I remember making it to uh, Moody in Chicago to go to, to, to seminary to study the Word of God. And by this point, I was so sick and tired of this stuff. And Dr. Larry Mercer, African-American professor teaching me an excellence in leadership class, who went on to become the president of Capital Bible College, he was telling me that, that multi-ethnic leadership was all through the Bible. And I said, I'm getting tired of this stuff. Can you, can you just explain to me why we keep letting society dictate what the Bible says instead of letting the Bible say what the Bible says? He challenged me to pick up the Word, particularly the book of Ephesians, and read it for what it says about cultural and ethnic diversity. I was changed. I couldn't read the Bible the same anymore. Because I was the one that was keeping the word from saying what it was saying. And so our application this week is to ponder the cross-cultural priority of the gospel. Paul would have had no problems if he just stuck Jewish. You know, Paul, if you just preach Jewish and only Jewish, don't go to the Gentiles, you'll have no problems. It was not an evolution of thoughts that at the perfect time all of a sudden became acceptable. It wasn't some psychological deal on Paul's part. It was entirely against culture for him to go across cultural bounds. And yet he wrote to Corinth in chapter 12, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one church body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are made to drink of one Spirit. Ponder the cross-cultural priority of the gospel. A dominant theme through the entire New Testament is how people who aren't like one another should treat each other. We would have a large portion of the New Testament gone 
if this was not a priority. And then a sociologist, Rodney Stark, who I don't even know if he's a believer or not, but he wrote a, a sociology uh, historical book called The Rise of Christianity, how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. And his argument is that there's three things that made the Christian church unique and why it grew in leaps and bounds. The Christian church ran towards the sick and dying instead of away from them. The Christian church elevated the status of women. And the Christian church embraced all ethnic and cultural groups in one unified cross-cultural body. It is our history. This is not separate but equal. This is living together, eating together, loving one another, walking through cultural tensions together. And so I leave you with this. Ponder the cross-cultural priority of the gospel. The Christian church's burning passion is to proclaim the reversal of Babel. The death blow of the sin curse on a divided humanity. The restoration of all things under a single unifying preeminent Jesus. We are about the matchless glory of God which obliterates human blockades, draws together unfamily, and permeates the globe with the glad praises of one King who rules us all, whose one blood has ransomed us all, and whose one Spirit indwells us all. We will be one blended family because God will be most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him and most unified in Him. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we sit at the feet of your word, I pray that once again that it would come as a bomb of refreshing to our souls. That we would see the joy in Paul's life, not the legalism. That we would see the joy of a cross-cultural family, not a threat. That we would see the call to joy, not the call to some sort of strong-armed obedience. God, may we love one another well, and may that be the testimony of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take communion this morning as one family. And so 